Good morning. It's good to see you. Welcome if you're at the Cove campus or online this morning. So glad that we could be together in God's Word and what we've already begun to experience in worship together. And so we're going to open God's Word here in just a minute as we make our way through a series that we are highlighting different psalms uh, over the next few weeks. Uh, particular psalms that are kind of just standout psalms that certainly communicate uh, a richness of our relationship with the Lord. And what we've begun to already going to tease out is that the Psalms say a lot and, and, and as theological as they may be and kind of our understanding of what they tell us about God, what the Psalms reveal even more so is our response back to God and what it looks like for us to have a language and to be able to articulate feelings and the emotions that we experience as being, you know, distinctly human in relationship with God. The Psalms help us. The Psalms give us words to sing, words to pray. And one of the thoughts that we had from last week was this, that until the Psalms actually become yours, ours, our songs, our prayers, we'll never really understand Psalms and kind of what their intention is within God's word to us. And so the Psalms help us kind of approach God and, and give us, again, words to say to him at, from our experiences. And, and the Psalm that we're going to look at today is certainly one of those. It made me think as we was approaching this morning, uh, just a few years ago, I had this thought. I thought I would be further along than I am right now. I don't know if you ever had that thought, but there's, there's certain weaknesses, temptations, struggles that I thought I would just be done with at this point in my life. I don't know if some of those have been replaced with new ones. There's certainly things in my life that I believe more deeply but there is still a lot of work for God to do in me. And so I want to talk about this morning, this idea of change. Like, how, how do we change? How, how do we grow? The, the scriptures are full of biblical insights on how we become, our, our becoming. And I would say that one of the most significant routes that God uses to bring about change in our lives for us to grow and to become is the route of repentance. And so Psalm 51 is the psalm we're going to look at this morning. If you're not familiar with this song, it is probably the, one of the most developed and best kind of passages within the scripture that talk about repentance and the kind of the ingredients that make for just a, an, an amazing recipe of 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 longing for the Lord, of confession, of God's healing work in our life. And so I, wanna, I want Psalm 51 to guide us. And I would just say this, as, as we begin to step into the topic of repentance, there are all kinds of personal challenges and difficulties that I feel when I begin to approach this topic. I don't know when the last time is that you heard a sermon that was specifically about repenting. And so there may be something in you that also kind of rises up or you begin to wrestle with as you begin to hear these words and understand what the psalmist is trying to invite us into. But I would just say this, that repentance truly is a gift of God. It's a route to freedom. It's a route to change. Um, it's, it's a way towards life. And so I want to I start with that because if you, if you can trust me and trust God's word that the movement of our lives towards repentance is a movement towards life and freedom, then, then we'll have a greater chance of kind of getting here at the end of, of what I think God would have for us to do and, and how we could lead this morning. The word repentance in, in kind of in general means to turn. 
And so it's this idea that you would be headed in one direction and to repent is to turn and to head in the opposite direction. And maybe even better than that, it's this idea of uh, to change one's mind. So there's this idea that you might have a perspective or a thought or a belief in something and to repent from that is to see it in a different light and to turn from something towards a new idea, towards a new direction, towards a new perspective. And so repentance is something that we see throughout the scriptures and what the theologians have said for a long time is repentance is not a one-time thing. Uh, repentance is something that we do as God's people often. Martin Luther said this, to progress is to begin at the beginning, to start over. In other words, our life as it matures, our life as it grows, never really outgrows the gospel, never really outgrows our understanding of God's grace and mercy in light of our brokenness and sinfulness and the exchange of that of what God brings to our lives as we come to him in confession, as we come to him humbly and honestly, this kind of work of God. So the gospel is something that we never really outgrow. It's always a work. Paul said in Acts 26 that his main goal for preaching to the people at large was this, that they would repent and turn to God and then perform deeds of repentance. And so maybe even better than just a change of mind is that you and I would have kind of a change of mind towards a change of of action. That real repentance will be more than just thinking differently. Real repentance will be living differently. To truly think differently would kind of become a new action, a new activity a new, in our lives. So as we, as we open up Psalm 51 together, I just want to kind of frame what you're going to see the psalmist begin to articulate for us uh, in this way. Verse 1 of Psalm 51 opens up like this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. As the psalm opens up, there is this appeal to God, that God, as I come, like I'm, I'm coming in this certain way. And what I love the way the psalmist begins to help us with is the psalmist begins to come to God uh, based upon the character of God. So God, let me come to you according to, kind of give mercy according to your unfailing love. That unfailing love is often translated as steadfast love. Or unfailing love, steadfast love, it's, it's kind of within this larger kind of idea of God's love, the hesed love of God. And the Hesed love of God is this rich idea of God's grace and mercy for us and his commitment to us and his, his, his connection to us. That's, this Hesed love is this stubborn love. It's not just a fair love. It's quite unfair because it's, it's very much not weighted into our good behavior or bad behavior, but it's, it's weighted because God has bound himself to us. When the psalmist begins to say, God, give mercy to me based upon your unfailing, steadfast Hesed love, he's using covenant language. He's saying, God, I'm going to come to you right now. I'm going to try to be as honest as I can. And I'm going to present my needs to you and what I hope you will do because I know that you're a God who keeps his promises. I know that you're a God bound. You have bound yourself to your people. And so I'm trusting in this quality of your love that it is a place where I can come back to no matter how far away I've been, no matter what I've done. He's using this 
language of God's covenant. Have you ever thought that you were beyond hope? That maybe that you had just sinned just enough that maybe you were done. God was done with you. You'd, you'd prayed this prayer enough. You'd asked for God's help in this enough. You'd asked for God's forgiveness enough. And at this point, you're like, I just don't know how God feels about me. We've all been there. And what the psalmist is beginning to help us understand is it's, he's not coming to him first on his behavior and what he's done. He's coming first into the nature and character of God. And that begins to help bring everything else out to the surface. That begins to help him say, wash me, wash away all my iniquities. In other words, I need, I need God. I need a special action, something that only that you can do. Wash away my iniquities. There's something about sin that lingers. There's something about sin that clings. There's a residue here. There's this picture in this idea of kind of this washing or blotting out of just going into the laundry room and you're, you're washing clothes. And this idea that there would be some special action given to these clothings in order to remove the stains, to remove the spots. Uh, we've got kind of an arsenal of kind of special cleaners just to the left of our washing machine. There's probably half a dozen different bottles that you could grab and spray onto the spot or to the stain, depending on what it is, to kind of get, you know, get the dirt out. I, I have a favorite pair of shorts. I just admitted that to you. Is it weird that someone would have a favorite pair of shorts? But I have a favorite pair of shorts and I saw it in the laundry room the other day and it had a spot on it. I was like, okay, great. Well, I know I'll reach, reach over here and grab one of these special cleaners and we'll get it out. And I realized this spot is paint. Like, ooh, I don't know if that's coming out. Like, I, I need something extra. There's something special that I need. There's some other cleaner. There's something, I, you know, what does that cost? What do I need to go pay for at the store? That's what the psalmist is kind of leaning into. There is a special, costly cleaner that he's saying, like, only you can bring this. Only you can supply this. I need this applied to my life. The iniquity, I'm asking God that you would wash it away, that you would make me clean. And so the psalm begins in this way. One, as it begins to open up in its music, in its prayer, the psalm says, one, God, it's your unfailing love that I first want to declare. And second is my need. And I would just say that is a great way to pray. That's a great way for any song to start. The unfailing love of God and our need for rescue, our need for God's activity in our life. He goes on in verse 3. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from my time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. There are a lot of little points within this section of scripture I just want to highlight for you. And one is in verse 4. It says, against you and you alone have I sinned. That should make us stop and go like, what is he saying? Surely our sins affect other people or ourselves. What does it mean when he says that against you and you alone? And what he's saying here is it's, it's a way of saying, God, it's you first. It's first against you that, that you're the one who helps me even know what sin is. And so 
my sin, my iniquities are first against you. And it's this condition that's against God who made us. It's against our neighbor who bears the image of God. And so the very first place that our sin touches is God himself. That when we sin, we treat God in that way. I don't know if you've thought about it like that. That when we sin against others, when we walk out iniquity, that our very first kind of action is towards God himself. That when we sin, we treat God in the way of that sin. And he says, I have done what is evil in your sight. I'm just challenged by that because I don't know if I often will use the word evil as it relates to my actions, my behaviors. It's a strong word. When's the last time that you saw your sin and you called it evil? Right, I tend to minimize. Right, I'm a kind of guy that's like, hey, don't worry about that. Things will all work out. It's no big deal. That's not a great quality when it comes to repentance. There's something here in this moment where he begins to say, this is bad. This is, this is no small thing. And I would say that we can kind of sniff this out in the difference that we've often heard between a good apology and a bad one. You know the difference. Right? When someone comes to you, they're offering an apology, and their apology is, it kind of sounds like this. I'm sorry that you felt that way. Right? I'm sorry that you got your feelings hurt. I'm sorry that you didn't understand kind of what was really going on. Right? It's that kind of, I'm sorry... But you, right, in that moment, right, we're like, that's not a real apology. That, that's, there's something else going on here. And what you get with this idea is when we sin, right, this, the essence of that is you and I telling God, I got this. Regardless of your word, regardless of your will, regardless of your purposes, regardless of your plan for my life, I got this right now. And I'm experiencing kind of in this moment something that I want to do the way I've chosen it because I'm not real happy the way that you've chosen it, whether this has worked out. And so I'm taking matters into my own hands right now. God, I got this. There's a certain amount of satisfaction. There's a certain amount of, of kind of blessing. There's a certain thing that I'm trying to achieve and you're evidently not bringing it to me in your way, in your timing. So I'm taking matters into my own hands. That's the essence of sin. It's when we move God off the throne of our lives, we put ourselves on that throne and we begin to make decisions that we believe are best that would suit us. And this is what he begins to say. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. The psalmist is saying, hey, I'm not going to spin this situation. I'm not going to try to soften the outcome. God, the way that you assess your verdict on my life, it's right. I'm not going to try to defend myself. I'm not just, I'm not going to, I'm going to shift blame. And we're so prone to that. Well, it really wasn't my fault. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve in the garden. The very first sin. God comes to them and says, hey, what's, what's going on? And Adam says, oh, I can tell you, it's the woman that you gave me. Look what Adam did. In that moment, he blamed two other people. Blamed God and the woman. The woman that you gave me. Eve evidently didn't have as many options after that point, so who does she blame? The serpent. Ah, the serpent tricked me. God's coming to them, asking them about their disobedience, asking them about their sin, and they are moving all of the blame to somebody else. It's this excuse that's not here in the psalm. The psalmist is not saying, God, I come to you. I need you to help me. Man, if, 
If my spouse were just different, if my kids were just a little different, God, I had a bad day. I, I was stressed. I was tired. I was just unwinding. I just shared that story with that other person just so that they could say that I was right. Like, God, you know, he doesn't offer any of those excuses up. He says, your verdict is right. Your assessment of my life is just and true. This is what he begins to offer us. He says, surely sinful from birth. Now, what he's not saying is David, David, the psalmist here, is not saying that I was conceived in sin. He's not talking about the way that he was conceived. What he's saying here is something different. He's saying that the circumstances of my life are not because of a freak event. It's part of my character. It's part of my nature. That the crime is in my character. The crime has been there and, and it's begun to show itself. The problem with sin is internal, not external. The problem with sin is not your family history. It's not your financial state. Your, your problem with sin happened early. And, and so when you came into the world, you were your biggest problem. It's not your circumstances. It's you. And this is what the psalmist begins to offer us. And this is how the psalmist kind of helps us understand, like, what is a good confession? What is a humble and honest kind of assessment of their sin, of their iniquity, in the light of God's sight? You may already be familiar with this passage and kind of how it originated. I already told you that the, the author is David. But to understand a little bit of the context could help you to know that this psalm came out of one of the darkest seasons of David, King David's life. And if you remember this moment, you know, 1 Samuel talks about this very, 2 Samuel 11 and 12 talk about this very moment where David stayed home. When all the other soldiers, when all of the other military and army went out to war, David stayed home. And in this decision to stay home, he then observed Bathsheba. And circumstances began to lead in one to another decisions that David began to make where David called for Bathsheba. She came to him. He slept with her. She conceived a son, but she was married. She was married to one of David's friends. She was married to Uriah, who was out fighting for David, was out fighting for Israel. And Uriah was one of David's mighty men. He was this, in this small group of just passionate people devoted and loyal to David. And so David then decides to cover up, to cover his tracks. So he invites Uriah back from the battlefront, asks how the, the battle is going. And in that moment, he says, David, Uriah, go home. Be with Bathsheba, your wife. In other words, if he could get Uriah to go back home, spend a night with his wife, then everything would kind of look like the child was Bathsheba and Uriah's. But you know what Uriah did? He... He slept out in the, he slept outside. He didn't, he didn't go. He didn't go home because he said, why should I go and be with my wife in the comfort of my home when everybody else is fighting? And so David hears that, that he didn't go home. And so he invites him back. He feeds him, gets him drunk, hoping at this time, maybe Uriah's honor would be compromised and now he'll go home. And he doesn't again. He sleeps apart from his home. He goes back to the battlefield David sends a message to his general and says, hey, when the battle gets tough, put Uriah in the fiercest part of the battle and then I want you to retreat. 
And the general does that, and Uriah is killed in battle. And Bathsheba mourns, but is soon then received by David, and she becomes David's wife, and she gives birth to their child. And almost a year goes by, and the prophet Nathan comes into King David's court and he begins to tell David a story about two men, one rich, one poor. The rich man owned flocks and flocks of sheep. And the poor man owned only one young lamb. And he treated this lamb almost like a daughter. He held it in his arms. He fed it from his table. And Nathan tells a story that when a traveler came and visited the rich man, that the rich man to prepare a meal for this traveler did not take one of the lambs from his flock, but he took the one single lamb that the poor man had. And he prepared it for the meal. And as David heard that, this indignation began to rise up in him. And this anger began to come out that somebody would do something that unjust. And David said, that man, that rich man, that man deserves to die. And Nathan pointed at David and said, you are that man. And David was gripped in that moment, kind of like face to face with his sin, face to face with what he had done. And I would offer you this, that when that moment happens, when that confrontation takes place, when all of a sudden something that was hidden away, when something that you hope nobody would find is all of a sudden discovered, it is a work of God's grace on your behalf. It is God's gift to us that we would be confronted. David didn't know the danger that he was in with this sin living under the surface. David didn't understand completely what happens when sin is hidden and how it grows and how it becomes something even more. I have a, I have a dog. Um, do you have a dog like this that you, like it's costing you more than you thought it would? Like it came to you as like a free pet and now you realize the, the vet visits and the medicines and uh, the new fence that we put in and everything that kind of happened around this dog, you begin to kind of wonder like, huh. Oh, I didn't really realize how expensive animals were. <laughs> so my dog, this dog, has a, um, has a tumor, kind of a growth. And it's been there for a while. Uh, it started out as just kind of this little pink spot uh, on its neck. It was cute at first. We kind of said it was its on and off button. It kind of looks like that. Uh, we even took a Sharpie to it at one point, put a little smiley face on it. I don't know. We just, you know, tried to lighten the mood. Jennifer, my wife, puts a bandana over it now because it's grown. Um, and so she kind of covers it over with a bandana so it doesn't scare like other dogs in the neighborhood or, you know, other people that were kind of passing by or somebody wants to come down and pet it and like, oh no, that's, that's weird. But we realize this, like something has to be done. And so we've made an appointment. Uh, the dog is going to go into the vet and, and have a surgery because because where it's at at this point, like we can't address it. Like we, we can't, it's, it's no longer just kind of a surface issue. Is that something you can just kind of cover up? Like it's, it's something that is beginning to grow. It's beginning to take ground. And there's a work that has to happen for the dog in order that it gets cut out. What the psalmist is trying to help us understand in this approach to the Lord is that there's a deep work of God that is needed in our lives. 
that if we are going to truly experience healing, if we're truly going to experience kind of restoration, that we've got to get below the surface, that there is a deeper issue, that we need God to go deep, to cut deep into these areas of our life so that we might experience the fullness of his forgiveness. Listen, if you and I are in a relationship with one another and your honesty is only kind of surface deep, then the grace and forgiveness that you and I can exchange is only surface deep. Right? I can only forgive you to the point that you admit that there was some wrong in our relationship. But with the psalmist is coming to the Lord, the psalmist is kind of laying bare, God, I have no excuse. I am not going to shift blame. God, I come to you in this hope in your character of unfailing love that you would do a work in me. Truly, it's my character. Truly, I was sinful from the womb. It's not this event. It wasn't an accident. It's something that has been working itself out in me for quite some time. And so as David is almost lays himself before the Lord, like he is able now in some ways to receive the forgiveness that covers sin, the grace that abounds. And that's what the psalmist is trying to teach us as we approach the Lord, of what we need to happen for full restoration, for forgiveness to happen in our lives. He goes on in verse 7. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. David is not asking for a cover-up. David is asking to be cleansed with hyssop, he says. And this hyssop was a, a broom-like branch. And you see it in different places in the scriptures of what it was used for to kind of sprinkle water or sprinkle blood in an act of cleansing. And so the hyssop branch was used in the ritual act of cleansing a leper. So, it was also used in the, in the ritual purification that if you touch something that was dead and you became unclean, then this kind of the sprinkling of a hyssop branch would help, would help purify you of, of death. And this is what David's feeling. Like, like, I feel dead. Like, I've touched death. There's a, a condition that I'm experiencing like leprosy. God, cleanse me from that. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Here's what he's feeling. Like there's this something, this unconfessed, undealt with transgression is kind of hollowing David out. Have you felt that? That if you just try to pretend like that didn't happen, if you just try to say, hey, this isn't really an issue, and you just start living your life, my, my, the feeling that I have, the feeling that I think is often true, it's like living with a low-grade fever, it's not really noticeable to everybody else. You're pretty highly functioning, but there is just this ache. There's just something happened that maybe you only know, and it doesn't really show up until all of a sudden you're needed, until patience is needed, until resources are needed, until all of a sudden something stressful is, happens, and, and you're kind of required to be present in a greater way, and you just can't be because there is part of you that's just not there. You're kind of walking around, in this way that it seems like you're doing well, but there's this restlessness in you. There's a lack of peace, and it peaks in these moments of crisis. David says, let these bones that you have crushed rejoice. That word rejoice can also be translated dance. Let these bones that have been crushed dance. Here's what he's saying. There's something hopeful in this, that if he comes to the Lord, if, if God truly applies the good work to his life, that he would dance. Hide your face from my sins. David is a, a real sign of 
repentance is this, is David is processing his guilt and his sorrow more than the consequences of his action. It's a good sign of repentance. Listen, there were incredible consequences that came with what David did with Bathsheba and Uriah. You can continue to read about those, how those things begin to play out. But the truth is, is that you and I, when we experience true repentance, real change, we are more grieved and more mourn the distance that we feel in our relationship with God and others than the consequences of our sin. Listen, if, if you're most concerned with how you've ruined your life, if you're most concerned with how you've hurt other people, you will miss the distance in your communion with the Lord. You'll miss this peace that God's wanting us to have, that sin makes us self-centered. And so we often approach our sins and our weaknesses by trying to forgive ourselves. That's not really what the Bible says to do. The Bible says to become more aware of the Lord, to seek Him, to turn your life more vertically, Instead of inwardly, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. The sorrow that God brings into our life brings us to our knees where we realize that we need a Savior and God's saving work is then applied to our life through the work of Jesus. In other words, we will always gain more in our confession than we will lose in our circumstances. That is a place of faith to truly believe that. That you believe that if I am open and honest before God about my life, there is more to gain in my confession and my relationship with him than what I will lose in the circumstances and the situation I'm in. Verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David says something really important. Create in me. He's asking for a miracle. He's, he's praying, petitioning for God to do something truly divine more than David could just cover up his, his transgressions by, by some good behavior or kind of buckling down in self-control to just be a better person. He's saying, create in me something new, a pure heart, a new spirit, your presence. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. When did David lose his joy? Did he lose it after the sin or did he lose it before? I say yes that there was something that David began to miss even before this incident, even before this event, that he was all of a sudden still losing a certain amount of joy, a certain amount of delight, a certain amount of uh, affection for God. And so this idea of, of joy, of where God wants to take our lives, return to me the joy of my salvation. Understand this, a move towards God, a move towards holiness is a move towards joy. Listen, you're going to experience great joy as you begin to experience the goodness and the closeness of God as sin is confessed and as you're repenting and moving in a different direction. Like this is what happens in our lives. We get to experience so much more than that. It isn't a peace from God that we experience by what we do. God isn't just dealing with us by having good days with good behavior and we're having bad days because of bad behavior. God is dealing with us now in a new way that we are his children 
by our faith and belief in who Christ is and his work for us, it changes our status. And as God's children, he's moving us in a new direction to know him in this way of loving us, of confession, of forgiveness. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces, they find mercy. And I love the way the psalm turns here. And let me show you this in verse 13, because David moves from this kind of pleading with God of what God could do in his life to this assurance that he has that God is going to do a renewed work of grace in his life. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Listen to that. He's, he's hopeful that God is going to use him after this. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. So this... The reason why I tell you David's backstory, the backstory to Psalm 51, is not so that you can hear what David did through adultery and murder and go like, whew, I'm glad that's not me. That's not the point of the story, the backstory. The point of the backstory is this, is that you could commit adultery and murder and still God use you. It's still got to have a plan for you. That that doesn't disqualify you from this work that God wants to do, this incredible, deep, miraculous work where God will create something new in you that you would actually be able to teach transgressors. You would actually be able to help and encourage other people that your lips would be open and you would be able to declare the praise of God. Listen, our unconfessed sin, it silences our worship. You're missing an opportunity to praise God when we kind of hold on to sin, when we're unrepentant about the way and the directions our lives are going. And here's what the psalmist says. He believes that God's grace will help him. Confession and worship are close. Listen, if our worship is not at a high level, I wonder, do we need to be a people of greater confession, greater repentance? My sacrifice is a broken spirit and contrite heart. Listen, the best gifts you can give God are hateful to him if they do not come with a broken and contrite heart. Every act of obedience, every act of service, everything that you hope that would embody your faith will be missing something if it's not connected to a, a certain humility and a certain brokenness in coming to the Lord. The psalmist closes in verse 18 with this. May it please you to prosper Zion to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. I love this, this kind of progression of, as, as the people of God sing this, as these words of repentance and confession kind of become part of their, their language to the Lord, then there's this picture of Zion being restored, of Jerusalem's walls being built up. Zion and Jerusalem were often kind of metaphors for the people of God. And so as, as one prospered, the other prospered. There was this connection that as God's people were in ruin or in exile, that Jerusalem or Zion were also in disrepair. But as you see Jerusalem's walls being built up, there's something happening that when we are people who are repenting, when we are people who are confessing, like there's something that happens that is the, to the benefit of all of us. Don't miss this. What you see in Jerusalem and Zion is that our lives are connected. 
the walls would be built up as you and I come to the Lord in this way. It means this, that your life of confession and repentance is important to me. My life of confession and repentance is important to you. The hand cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. If we're, if we're walking around with something that God needs to address with his grace, if we're continuing to hold on to something that is unconfessed, we all suffer. We all miss something that God could be doing in this exchange of grace and forgiveness and healing. Our lives are connected. Let me show you. James chapter 5 highlights this in such a unique way. James 5, verse 14, is anyone among you sick? You may have heard this passage before. Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Great. All right. So sick, get healed, come to the elders. And, pr and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise them up. Now listen to this. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. What an interesting thing James is doing here. He's, he is blurring something, the physical and the spiritual. At first, it's about people that need to be healed. They're physically sick. And then it transitions over to hear this unconfessed sin. And both as we confess, both as we pray with one another and for one another, there's a healing that comes. Now, you have to have faith to believe that. You have to have faith to believe that if you and I begin to be honest with one another and to truly share our sins and failures, that there would be an experience of grace there. That there would be a work of God's mercy in that. We need to be a people that learn how to confess to one another. You need people in your life that you can say these things to because what God is offering us is this route of confession and repentance is a restorative work is a work in healing and so if, if you've never done that if you've never sat down with somebody and said hey here's something I've never told anyone I've never forgotten it though I can't tell you how many times the Lord has reminded me of this how it just lingers can I tell you that this moment where you share that with somebody else can be a, can, there can be an experience of freedom there? It's what we're here for. It's why you need church. It's why you need safe people. It's why we, we're meant to be in this place of overlap and communion, our lives. It's a step of faith to believe that as I confess that the grace of God is also there in powerful ways. Real change comes through repentance, approaching God for help. Let me just give you a couple thoughts as I close. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, fascinating about repentance. He says this, that true repentance is this, wanting the one you have offended. Consider this, that, that when true repentance is happening in our life, and this is subtle and this is tricky, but it's oh so important, is that if you're truly experiencing change, if you're truly experiencing true repentance, a change of mind in a new direction, you will want more the one that you have offended. That there is something in this relationship for us of God's love that when we have abused it, it becomes a weight. 
It presses down on us. It crushes us. But the same love of God creates a foundation for us where we can be forgiven. And that love has been most perfectly expressed on the cross. And the cross becomes this place of change for us where we see God actually, the righteous one, dying for sin. And and all of a sudden, the cross now gives confidence to our confessions that when we come to God broken, sinful, when we come to God in this way, he is ready to apply forgiveness to our life. It's there, ready to renew us. What I love about what you see through the scriptures is this, is that David's prayer created me a new heart, a pure heart. Give your spirit to me. Who knew that David's prayer would be fulfilled by the son of David? That the very work of Christ on the cross would bring a certain cleansing to us that Ezekiel talked about, that a new spirit and a new heart would be given to his people and that you and I would be restored in such a way that David's actual prayer for the spirit of God to now be in us would happen through our faith in Christ. And this would change everything. One more passage. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. You know how I used to read that verse? Oh my goodness, I sin. Am I not born of God? Right, that's an easy way to kind of take away like, oh, this is, that is a troubling verse. Can I tell you that is the most hopeful verse? The idea is this, that if you've been born of God, if you've placed your faith in Christ, if you've been given a new heart, as the scriptures say, if the spirit of God now resides in you, your life by the will of God is moving towards something better than what it was. It means you won't sin. You're going to be, there's an end point of sin in your life. And the direction that God is taking you that is a greater life in him, is a greater health in him. That God is going to, because of his commitment to you, is going to keep addressing the sin in your life so that we can repent and turn from it. In other words, this is what the seed of the Lord in you, what's most true about you is there is a holiness that's been now written in your DNA as one of Christ's children, one of God's sons and daughters. I tell you this because I think if you know where your life is headed, you might cooperate better with it. If you know that the route that God has for you is for healing and restoration and freedom and joy, and the route of that is learning how to see sin, agree with God's assessment of it, receive his forgiveness over that, and then turn from that and move in the other direction with other people. If you know that's what God has planned for you, go with it. If you haven't experienced real freedom from the confession that comes in sharing, being honest before God and others, that may be the next step for you. Where is your life pointed? What would it look like for you to turn from the direction that God may be bringing to your mind right now to the, thing that, to the, to the, to the way that you are saying, God, I got this, to turn towards something different? something new, something better. Let's pray. I love, I love this idea, this idea of turning. It's this moment in Luke chapter 15 where the prodigal son says he comes to his senses and he gets up and he starts heading home. And that's really the, a beautiful picture of what repentance means. It means to return home, to turn home. 
And so this morning, I would say this. If, if you have not ever come to a place in your life where you consider God through the work of Christ for you as home, that this morning you might. This morning you might, in your prayer, say, Lord, let me, let me come to you and live in you, abide in you. Let me make my home in you. Let me, God, let my life turn towards a God who is a God of unfailing love, who is steadfast, who is ready to offer mercy. God, for others that need to hear again who we are, that we are yours, we're your kids. And there's a plan for our life that is truly free, filled with joy. And God, if we're not experiencing that, God, could it be perhaps there are things in our own life that we need to confess, agree with, remind ourselves of the forgiveness of the cross that is ready and applied to our lives to turn. Listen to what Isaiah says. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen to me. Eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me Listen that you may live. Thank you that you offer us life through the midst of all of our issues, all of our brokenness, all of our sin. That Jesus, you came that we might have it in you. So God, let us, as we can, each of us, become honest and open to this great work of receiving your love this morning. Use this time of worship as a time to just pray and to share our hearts, Lord, to say what we need to say to you as we lean into your unfailing love and ask for your help.